Hope you stick with it. Surfing's the source. It'll change your life. Swear to God. W-A-L-T, it's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Electrovoice RE20 via the Avitas MA5, and that's it. This is just the sound of the Electrovoice RE20 today. There's no additional processing frippery happening on the voice, and that's where I want to start on the episode today. Why am I obsessed with microphones. Why do I always start these episodes by telling you about the microphone? It's because I think microphones are so interesting. They are a tool designed to literally enable this ephemeral thing that I think all artists are chasing, which is to authentically capture these feelings experiences, sensations that are resonating around within us, wanting to come out. And the microphone is this way of capturing those things, giving them expression, and making them sound, hopefully, to outside ears, what they sound like in our own heads, in our own minds. And ever since I started recording, I I have had a sound in my head of of what I would like to think my voice capturing all this sounds like. And I just, somewhere along the way, got fixated on the idea that there was some specific microphone that could tune into that frequency and and grab it out of the ephemeral, ethereal soup of my mind and make it into a sound wave that I could place somewhere for others to hear or not even for others to hear really this is the honest thing to just feel like it lives somewhere to feel like i got it down i grabbed it out of the air and i got it down and so as i began researching microphones i i pretty quickly happened upon the electro voice re20 it is a classic of the radio genre it is a classic in music recording studios And so it was one of the first mics that I tried. And from the very beginning, it was the one that when I talked into it, I felt in my headphones like, oh, yeah, there's me. Hello, me. This is you, me. But the Electrovoice RE20 is not the most prestigious mic. It's not the most expensive mic. It is not visually the most captivating mic. There are many others that are. And it's also not that weird of a choice. Lots of people love this mic. And I convinced myself that I wanted my choice for my voice to be special, to be expensive, to be prestigious, to be elite, to... I wanted it to feel like my voice is so special that it necessitates a very special choice for a mic. And I have spent years 
swapping microphones on and off of the boom stand that the Electrovoice RE20 is hanging on right now, I have spent countless hours late at night taking those other microphones, making recordings with them, and then sitting at my desk with my editing software and manipulating the waveforms of the equalizer to try to sculpt my own voice. And then what I will do is I will take these recordings that I have stayed up all night making and I'll play them for Adrian, my fiance, and I'll say, and I'll ask her to pick from the selections, whether it's the Neumann U87, the Geffel M930, the Earthworks Ethos, all other microphones that you have heard me talking to on this podcast. And I'll play, I'll play her all of those recordings and then I'll, I'll play her the RE20 without telling her which mic is which. And I'll just say, which one of these recordings sounds like me? Every time, not being a microphone nerd of the kind that I am, and not knowing which microphone is which, the recording she picks always in this blind test is always the RE20. It always is. And still, I resist it. I, I am reluctant to commit to the RE20 because I don't trust my own voice to be enough. I've been thinking about this a lot in relationship to the conversation that I had for the show today, which is with the two founding members of my favorite band, the Wood Brothers. And favorite bands are hard to talk about, I was realizing, because maybe you know the Wood Brothers already, in which case I don't ha probably have to convince you of how wonderful they are. But if you don't know the Wood Brothers, the first thought that's going to come into your head is what kind of music is it? And when you try to tell somebody about your favorite band, the kind of music question becomes an obstacle because the Wood Brothers are not this, but what if your favorite band is a klezmer band? And then you say, oh, well, they're a klezmer band. And what I like about them is by the time you said myrrh in klezmer, the person you're talking to, if they don't like klezmer music, has stopped listening. And the Wood Brothers, I want to reiterate, are not a klezmer band, but what I want to express to you about the Wood Brothers is not what kind of music they play, is not their technical skill at their instruments. What I want to tell you, what I want to communicate to you, is the way that listening to the Wood Brothers makes me feel. I remember the first time I ever heard the Wood Brothers. It was during my days as a New York City taxi driver, and I would drive around New York City listening to WFUV, which is just a jewel of a music radio station. And this was a very complicated time in my life because everything that I thought I wanted out of my life was not happening. My love life was in shambles. I moved here to be an actor, couldn't even get an audition, couldn't even get a response to an email that I sent in in hopes of getting an audition, quite frankly. I was tired all the time because the cab driving shifts were from five to five. I was broke because I was only making between 20 and 40 bucks a day, even though I was working 12 hours. I never really got to see my friends because I was working all the time. And when I wasn't working, I was asleep because I was exhausted. And I located a lot of the blame for that feeling in my life on the city that I had chosen to move to, New York City. And yet, driving a cab in New York City is the most potent way to feel connected to this maniacal town <laughs> that I have ever found. Being a cab driver in New York City feels like you are a cell moving through the city's 
veins. You are a part of its limbic system. The entire functioning of this mad apparatus depends, among other things, on cab drivers. Cab drivers who know where they are going, cab drivers who can create a space of trust and warmth within the cab. And I was one of those people. And for this period of my life, if nothing else, I was that. I was a functioning cell in the limbic system of one of the greatest urban beings that humankind has ever constructed. So that was a complicated feeling. And one day I was driving around listening to the radio and this song came on called Luckiest Man. And the chorus of Luckiest Man is running is useless, fighting is foolish, you're not going to win, but still, you're the luckiest man. You're up against too many horses and mysterious forces. And what you don't know is you are the luckiest man. I can barely recite those lyrics without crying. And that is the experience that happens for me every time I listen to the Wood Brothers. I feel their music in my body. It is, a, it is an embodied <laughs> listening experience. Every time I turn their music on, it's, I, I feel these knots form in the space just to the left and right of my navel. It, it's this tight, warm pair of stones that develops down there. It's not uncomfortable. It's just a, it's just a reminder from my body that, that that's where this music is hitting me. And then the other thing that happens is that I feel wetness begin to sparkle at the corners of my eyes because I'm so overwhelmed. And this is what our favorite bands do. It, it, it's like they have opened us up like a great microphone and captured the indeterminate stirrings that are running around our bodies all the time. And they put them in this beautiful container that you can revisit all the time so that you can remember what it feels like to be you. And how did they do that? How? How did these people you don't know see you so clearly and reflect yourself back to you so profoundly? And for me, nobody does that like Oliver Wood and Chris Wood. Now, Oliver Wood and Chris Wood are real-life brothers, and they will talk about this more in the interview, but they came together as a band somewhat later in their respective musical careers. Oliver uh, sang and played guitar and wrote songs in a blues band called King Johnson for many years. Chris played the bass in the seminal jazz trio Modesky, Martin, and Wood, he was the wood in that equation. Something you should know about Modesky, Martin, and Wood if you don't know Modesky, Martin, and Wood's music is that, to my understanding, they improvised almost all their songs spontaneously. Just the three of them together in a room, riding the moment and using their instruments as surfboards and ending up with this music. I love Modesky, Martin, and Wood also. That's for a different episode, but that's important context for the way you're about to hear Chris in particular talk about music and composition. 
And when Oliver and Chris came together to form the Wood Brothers, as you will hear them discuss, it was at a pivotal point in both of their personal lives. And they were both, because of the seasoning that they had had, emotionally and musically, ready to receive each other. And all I was going for in this conversation was to try to understand how these two guys in that particular moment of their lives ended up making a band that has the effect on me that it does. And I felt like I got a lot of really great answers to that. There was also a challenge, which is that Oliver and Chris were in different locations and we were on three different internet connections and three different forms of technology. And that means that this is not the best line that I have ever recorded guests on. And you'll be able to understand everything everyone is saying. um, So, you know, don't worry. But as I was editing the episode together, it started to make me sad a little bit that the sound quality wasn't able to be better through factors beyond anyone's control. But then I thought, in a way, it's totally of a piece with everything that you're about to hear us talk about, but also with the phenomenon of what a band can do in your life, which is that somehow across an unbridgeable gap, you're living your life, they're living theirs, sound is able to fuse those experiences into something new. And to the best of my ability, that's what I'd like to think we did in this conversation. And the last thing I want to say before we get started is that shortly after we recorded this conversation, I was watching a promotional video for the Wood Brothers' brand new record, which I could not recommend more highly. It's called Heart is the Hero. And at one point, you see Oliver sitting on a stool with his guitar, making some corrections to lyrics on a stand, about to start singing. What kind of microphone is he about to sing into? An Electro Voice RE20. I don't even know if I have a big conclusion to draw from that other than I love the idea that the person who sings the truth more beautifully than anybody else I've ever come across sings it into the same mic that, for me, captures the truth better than any other mic I've ever come across. Let's talk to the Wood Brothers on WALT. All right, Oliver Wood and Chris Wood, welcome to The Midnight Disease. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Sam. I can't tell you guys uh, how much it means to be talking to you. Um, your music, uh, as I will tell you exhaustively throughout this conversation, has meant a tremendous amount to me. Um, but one of the reasons I'm particularly excited to be talking to you about this new record is because in your creation of it, it seems to me you have really foregrounded the creative process that went into making the record. Um, you recorded it all analog, if I'm not mistaken. I know you, you did a lot of it performing live together in the studio, which is something that I know you've, you've done many times before. Um, so I wonder if, just to start, you could tell me a little bit about why that analog live approach 
felt so meaningful to you for this record? Well, um, I'll start off with saying I, I think in the past we've all been attached to the the romance and the actual beauty of analog recording and the, the specifically the sound of it. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's nothing new, you know, for people to to want to capture that. But I think what we got excited about was using that process and giving ourselves some limitations. And the biggest part of that was was really turning off the computer and not having a screen uh, even be part of the conversation at any point. Um, so really just wanting to be present and wanting the process to be fun and exciting and oftentimes with digital you have so many options that you get overwhelmed and you and you end up uh not feeling that present anymore yeah it it inevitably the computer inevitably leads to this analytical state of mind that is not conducive to the creative process like the the more and more we've done this i'm constantly vindicated in this thing that the best state to be in is the one where you have no idea what you're doing and you're reacting from your gut and you're working quickly. And computers inevitably, because you can do anything you want, the analytical part of your mind takes over and starts like approaching a song like a problem that needs to be figured out. Mm -hmm. And that's not the state that leads, I would say, to outcomes that we like. Right. Yeah. And so the analog process kept things in the moment, definitely. I mean, even literally, just if anybody out there listening has been in a studio and worked on a record before, you know what happens. Eventually, when you're using Pro Tools and the computer, instead of interacting with each other, everyone's just staring at the screen. Yeah, yeah. Right. And not interacting with each other and not even listening with their ears. They're kind of listening with their eyes because they see the waveforms on the computer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. you know what's coming because you can see it. And you're like, here comes the drum fill. Yeah. Here comes the vocal entrance. And that's <laughs> yeah. not really, not. that's nothing like how you experience music when you're just listening. Yes. Yeah. And I, I will add one thing also. when you're When you're performing for a recording and you're recording on tape rather than the computer your your mind is present because it really is a performance that that lands on the tape and there's very little you can do to it but when there's the infinite possibility in pro tools of digital i think that while you're performing even if you're performing live in the studio in the back of your mind you know that oh we can do this a hundred times or we can fix it we can glue two versions together whatever and i think if if that's in the back of your mind then like chris says you are not present and you're actually just kind of phoning it in you know what i mean this is more like a real performance where you really just get your chance and you just discover what the results are instead of like chris says overwork it and try to fix it you know the thing that ends up happening inevitably with computers is by playing the track over and over again, listening to it over and over again, and every time going, oh, that should be a little bit down. Oh, that should be a little bit up. Oh, let's change this a little bit. People like massage all the personality out of a track. All the mistakes disappear. Um, and all our favorite records don't have that. They, they mm-hmm. have 
uh, a personality. They're imperfect in the in the best way, you know. So the computer allows you to get rid of all the personality, but you don't even know you're doing it when you're doing that because you're at this microscopic level, which no average casual listener is ever going to be at. So you're kind of doing things and working hard on things that actually don't matter. Yeah. And, you know, this is making me think of something, Oliver, that I heard you say um, in an interview once. um, And I wonder if you guys could speak to this about this record, um, that when you a lot of times you guys will be in the studio, you'll be playing um, as a trio, um, the two of you and John O'Ricks, and you'll you'll just roll tape and you'll record on a song and you'll think uh, maybe by the time you get to the fourth or fifth take, like, okay, we really got it perfectly that time. But then when you go back and listen to it, you'll realize actually on that first take, there's more uncertainty. There's more dynamism. There's more energy because we didn't know if we were going to all hit the downbeat at the same time. We didn't know if the harmony was going to work and we, you can hear us finding it. So for this record, how much, um, I mean, I know obviously there's, uh, probably some overdubbing in terms of other instruments and additional parts and stuff. But when you were tracking the songs, how much of uh, how much of the time did you spend just the three of you playing through them start to finish live? I mean, it really varied, I think, from song to song. There's a certain point where you play a song a couple ta- a few times and you peak and then you started getting worse. And that's not always true, but I think we found that most of the time we picked an earlier uh, take Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we, over the years, have learned that every time we feel like we killed it, we like really nailed something. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not the take. Right. Mm. That's not the one. It's too muscular. It's too rushing. It's too confident. Yeah. Something about it, and it's the one where you don't quite know what's going to happen yet. That's when you're really paying attention and truly reacting and bypassing your conscious mind and right that's when you're making music yeah i we've said i've i know when we've talked about it sometimes once you really nail it in your head well when you listen back you can hear us thinking you can hear yeah. us knowing oh nailed it but what the ones that we usually like you can hear us reacting and you can hear us being spontaneous and maybe flubbing a little and those are the magic ones you know cuz there there's vulnerability yeah. You know, yeah. When you kill it, any musician who's like, I'm killing it, there's no vulnerability there. It's got a, a wall of, yeah. of uh, chops or machismo. whatever, confidence yeah. or camachismo, <laughs> but there's not, you're not going to feel any emotion from that. You yeah. might be impressed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so another thing that's that's fascinating to me in hearing you guys talk about this is that a lot of times you are actually writing about generating art, the unknown, instinctive, sort of mystical places that it comes from. And I think of songs like Postcards from Hell, I think of The Muse, I think of Made It Up the Mountain, um, Singing to Strangers even. Um, All of these songs and, and other ones are seemingly interested in this phenomenon of what happens when you give yourself to the moment rather than the computer or, or, or technique, say, but you really try to just focus on each other and, uh, as you were putting it, Chris, just kind of like feeling the music in your body. Um, I wonder if you could each answer a little bit, where does your 
curiosity about that process spring from? Um, maybe, Chris, if you could go first. I, I don't know if, if this is uh, where your impulse to answer the question is, but I heard you tell a story once about transcribing solos in Kind of Blue um, at a young age and realizing that it like wasn't about the notes. Yeah, that was a big epiphany for me. Um, so I was a young, aspiring jazz musician, really wanted to to understand the language of jazz, um, you know, how people improvised and what made it sound good, what made it sound convincing. So Kind of Blue, classic, iconic Miles Davis record with some of the most iconic jazz solos of all time. So I did, I transcribed note for note solos from Cannonball Adderley, John Coltrane, Wynton Kelly, Paul Chambers, Miles, you name it. And and I thought what I was going to find was that the reason their solos sounded so good is because they knew the cool notes to play. Hmm. So I thought as long as I like transcribe the solo, write it down and study it, I'm going to know how to play like them because I'll know what notes to play over what scales and how they choose those. And it was completely, for the most part, useless because I found that the notes they chose, I mean, I knew enough about music theory to be like, well, that's nothing special. That's the third, that's the fifth, that's a scale. There's an occasional like passing tones and things like that. And and so I wasn't learning anything by the notes. And it then, it, of course, it dawned on me that it's, oh, it's the rhythm. It's their phrasing. That's that's what it comes from. So it's it's really if it's the rhythm, it's your body. It's it's like the it's not your mind that creates mm -hmm. in the same way that when a good beat drops and you dance your mind is not analyzing the beat. It goes straight to your body and you move. Mm -hmm. There's no thought. When it's good, you know, of course, some people get really self-conscious when they dance and that's <laughs> when their mind gets in the way. Yes. But if you're feeling free and you're allowing yourself to be open and just let the music hit you and you respond honestly and instantaneously, you're going to groove. You're going to like groove with the, with the beat. And so it's the exact same thing these guys were doing. Like they, of course, had an enough of a knowledge of their instrument that they could trust that when the beat happened and the tune started and the form started going through it, all they had to do is listen and react just like someone dances to a good beat. And the notes will come. The rhythm will tell them the notes. And of course, that takes practice and preparation. But I think of the practice and preparation as trust building because you want to get to the point where you can only listen and not do while you're playing. If you don't mind, Oliver, um, I'll put the same question to you. On this same podcast where you were mentioning what's helpful about doing the live recordings, you talked about how you've been doing some kind of deep study and, and reading in recent years about how various songwriters achieve this, this state of yeah. uh, creativity. So what, what have you taken away from that reading and, and how has it shown up in your practice? Well, I'll, I'll I'll combine that with and with sort of building on what Chris was just talking about because you know we're talking about a state of mind and all of these things this in the same way that they apply to music I think they apply to living so the idea that you feel things in your body or that you react to things rather than do them you listen to them and react right like Chris was saying and and 
oftentimes I've been really interested in meditation, which is just that you're trying to learn how to get in a state of mind uh, where you are present. Mm -hmm. You use your body to make yourself present. So whether you focus on your breath or your heartbeat um, or sounds that are around you, it might be the, the, the air conditioner or something, but you're using your senses to be aware of your body. And in doing so, you're listening and, and you're very present, which is exactly what Chris was talking about as far as focusing on rhythm and letting it, letting your body take over, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. trusting. So, you know, the way you play is the way you live. Vulnerability and honesty come with that state of mind. Mm-hmm. And so what I've learned from reading about other songwriters is just like when we practice meditation, well, I think songwriters practice, learn and practice things that help them get into that state of mind. And I, I don't want to recommend it, but like, you know, some people use booze or drugs. I mean, that's one thing that can, quote, loosen you up and maybe, but, but you know, we want healthier alternatives than that and things that <laughs> don't seem like crutches, you know. So, um, for instance, a lot of songwriters I've read, they walk, they take a walk. And when you're walking or driving or like hiking in the woods, Paul Simon would throw a ball in, against the wall and catch it like mm-hmm. a baseball, you know, with a bit a mitt. I heard him say that in a couple different interviews. And I think that small motor skill thing that it takes to do those things somehow occupies your conscious mind, your judgmental mind, and holds it out of the way while your subconscious, more creative brain gets to work. Yeah, well, and there's even a moment on the new record where I forget which song it is, but you're singing about how you think that you're lonely. Um, And if you would just, uh, and I don't know if that loneliness was specifically related to the creative process, but I think the creative process can feel lonely sometimes. And you even Mm -hmm. say, you say in the song, just go outside, just go outside and remind yourself that there are other inputs than just whatever's in your own active, you know, distracted mind. Yeah. It's like you literally have to get out of your mind. I just reminds me, I just, I just, the thing that I practice, if I can remember to do it, some, that's the hardest part is remembering to do it. But I just ask myself a simple question in the thick of it, whether we're on stage playing music, whether I'm doing the dishes, well, no matter what's happening, I ask myself the question, can you enjoy yourself right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like a challenge. Mm-hmm. Can you enjoy yourself right now? You know, and it immediately stops the chatter in your mind because how how do you enjoy things? You enjoy them by paying attention to them. It's the only way you can enjoy a piece of music, the air, the smells, the tastes, whatever it is. So yeah, it's just I try to like train myself to ask myself that question. Like yeah. and and you can even reverse engineer the joy by just smiling. Mm-hmm. Right? And like like the so so if we're on stage sometimes I'll just do that I'll just start smiling and it triggers the the somehow this deep reminder of like oh yeah this joy comes from not being concerned over what I'm doing 
but mm-hmm. listening to Oliver and Jono and the audience and this amazing theater we're in, and all of a sudden it's just like this is a really amazing thing that's happening, and I'm in it. Yeah. And if I have enough trust in myself, I don't have to worry anymore about what how I'm going to react in the situation. I'm going right. to dance with it. And it doesn't mean like necessarily you're smiling because you might be enjoying the way like sometimes you, you're sad. And another definition of joy is when your inside matches your outside. So like if mm. you're really sad and you like have a therapeutic breakthrough and you're crying and sobbing, it's cathartic in a way that feels good in the same way that, you know, joy feels good. So it doesn't necessarily mean being all like smiling and happy, but yeah, it's like a release and something you kept saying, Chris, that I agree with so much is just the paying attention part, the paying attention to something outside of yourself. Yeah. I guess the reason I've landed on this enjoying thing is because I feel like, you know, words affect the way we do things. Right. And so when you say, tell someone pay attention, it becomes an act like I'm going to use my mind to scan my environment, to look at this thing, but it's ignores the part where the environment affects you. So if you tell yourself, well, can I enjoy this? Then you're instead, you're letting the environment come to you. It's a receiving of information instead of a, you know, like focusing out into the world Right. And I feel like that's how songwriting happens. That's how music happens is we receive information and instantly react to it. Like almost like there's no separation. We're a part of it. Yeah, that's that's really beautiful. And in the song Atlas, you guys have been singing that song for uh, or Oliver, in your case, I guess you've been singing that song for at least 20 years. And the chorus of that song is this very self-aware realization that like you don't really have control. Atlas says to you, don't try to hold my world up. Um, But the first line is, um, hallelujah, I just returned from a dream so far away. And I wondered if there was some specific revelation you had around these ideas that brought you to to this awareness. Definitely more recently, there are specific ideas, which are really the ones we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. And I, I got to say, that's so long ago for that song <laughs> that, <laughs> that I don't remember. I just, uh, I think of it as maybe I just received something and I don't, it, it was maybe more subconscious. And you know, when you think of things that you did creatively early on, where a lot less people were paying attention and being sort of younger and hungrier and and less jaded, et cetera, uh, innocent maybe. Um, I feel like in some ways it was easier to access the vulnerability and and it was easier to ignore judgment because you didn't you didn't judge yourself as as much because nobody was watching. I was playing shitty bars and it didn't it didn't matter what I did, you know. So there was that period that you can only have once and they always say you can only make your first album once you know especially (laughs) if and you know uh chris often says we we we've experienced a slow rise to the middle for the last almost 20 years but but we have it does feel like people are paying attention and now there's social media there's all kinds of things that make you more self-conscious and you know in your head on a bad day, you could feel like, oh, I, 
I got to make something people are going to like, or even your subconscious might pick that stuff up because people are already watching. And so again, that takes us back to these methods or tools. And it's like, okay, we, we need to put ourselves back in that innocent, vulnerable state of mind because it's not going to happen as easily, especially if we have to do Instagram and crap like that every day. And, <laughs> and, you know, we go play shows and there's a lot of people there and we're like, gosh, we, you know, we better be good or something. You know, there's subconscious voices like that, that, that happen. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So these, these tools yeah. become even more important as you advance through your career, because there's even more things to get in the way of that, that root impulse. Um, yeah. I wonder, I'm also really interested to talk to you both about what clues about these these ideas about creativity that you're both so articulate about, and I hear you saying that, you know, it's been a, a journey in various ways to, to arrive at that, but you you guys had creative parents, as I understand. Your, your dad was a, a folk musician, your mom was a poet. Um, what do you think you picked up from observing them at a young age that laid some, planted some seeds? Hmm. I, the awareness of the creative process didn't come till much later mm -hmm. for me. I mean, I saw, you know, our mom hard at work at poems at her desk, which gave zero insight to the creative process. I saw someone who looked like they're working hard at something who was probably struggling with all the things we're just talking about right now, you know, yeah. and especially because English was her second language. And so I think mm. she probably had to work through a lot of these same issues of being overly self-conscious. And, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, as a kid observing that completely clueless, just knew that she was doing something creative and she encouraged being creative. So that's what we got out of that. And our dad, you know, was the first live music we saw uh, because he would perform songs around the house and at family gatherings. So just having instruments around, watching them play, watching music happen right in front of you, it doesn't tell you much about the creative process, but it's, it's music and it's inspiring. So, you know, I feel like it takes a long time to learn what actually makes something good. Mm -hmm. And the truth is nobody knows. So I think once you eventually learn that nobody actually knows, then you start to learn how to relinquish the controlling part of the instinct that we have because we want it to be good. And so we think we have to force it in that direction, but that never works. So I think over and over again, you learn the hard lesson that that you're not in control, which sort of always leads me back to the joy thing, because I'm like, if I'm not having fun, this is not going to work out. There's got to be a joyfulness to the process and a lightness and a mercurial spontaneity. You know, there's got to be always got to have that feeling childlike. I mean, so more and more and more, I try to not work on things very hard. You know, you only work on it like enough where it's fun and things are happening. And as soon as you stop and it's like, oh, done, shelf it put things away, let go, and then come back later and you'll have that, you can react to it um, quickly. I think working quick, you hear a lot of artists and producers talk about that, you know, like, you know, yeah. oh, I like to work quick because you don't want to overthink things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think what you just said really unlocked something for me, Chris, because I, I'm my mom is an artist and um, I think just going back to what you were saying about wanting to experience uh, whatever art form we're talking about uh, in your body first and foremost, 
I think all of my earliest signals about art come from my mom, too. And really, they're a kind of physical reaction to the presence of the sculptures that she made, the photographs that she printed, and watching her in throw herself into that work and feeling a, a physical pull towards that kind of passion, um, a fascination, but but there there is a mystery to it. You don't understand it. And that really ultimately is, I feel like, what I was pulled to follow is that that sense of inner compulsion, not how do I make a photograph? What are the techniques to make a photograph? Um, but rather this, this more instinctual thing. And I, I hadn't really thought about that. And I, I would imagine, you know, similarly to seeing your mom writing at the desk, your dad creating these warm moments at family gatherings of just coming together around music, I could imagine feeling a natural pull towards wanting to replicate that somehow, whatever that ended up meaning. Yeah, I, I feel like with when it so, I mean, just to bring it into something that maybe even non-musicians would understand, um, if you try to sit down with a notebook and write five pages not knowing what you're going to write. So in other words, can you fill up five pages full of complete nonsense, stuff that absolutely makes no sense? Like, can you make words appear on the page with zero thought? Can you just keep going fast enough so your your thinking mind never catches up and you're just in complete nonsense? It's like Luke Skywalker, you know, and the Death Star is exploding and he's trying to stay ahead of the explosion. You know, you can feel your mind <laughs> chasing you and trying to make sense out of things. It's so fascinating, really, you know, when you really start paying attention to it and you start learning the boundaries between your conscious and your unconscious and the part of you that always wants to explain things. But if you keep going, it eventually kind of get into this flow like the yeah. way a surfer catches a wave you know and learn how to ride it yeah. ride the nonsense without steering it too much you know letting it steer you and that's tricky. definitely uh, an early contender for this ep- the ep- title of this episode would be ride the nonsense um ride the nonsense. <laughs> that's all right surfing the nonsense Plenty more to come with Oliver Wood and Chris Wood on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
You guys were both well into your professional music careers when you started playing together as the Wood Brothers. Did you always, because you're talking about a, a lot of shared values around this kind of creative spirit, did you always recognize that in each other? Chris and I, when we were teenagers, we were learning our instruments and we would play together and we even got a four track and we even recorded some things together. I remember we even wrote a couple instrumental kind of tunes and, um, you know, but that was a pretty small window. And then I left the house first and moved away and ended up in the, in Atlanta and Chris moved away to the Northeast and ended up in New York. And then there was this big 10, 12 years of us being, uh, doing our own thing with in other in completely different circles different parts of the country kind of growing up both musically and and personally when we got together after those 10 or 12 years having seen very little of each other having somewhat grown apart we had this opportunity where where my band at the time king johnson played a show with chris's band Modesky martin wood and we got to sit in i got to sit in with their band and chris and i just immediately connected on stage we just realized from this show that wow we should play music together now because we have these new things to share and um and to receive from each other and um it was so fresh and exciting for us to play together on a personal level to to reconnect us and on a musical level because we had both grown up musically too that it was immediately comfortable yeah i think it um both things are true. I mean, uh, there's this immediate chemistry that yeah. was undeniable, which which was the spark that started the Wood Brothers. Um, and then there was a ton to learn. I think what was exciting was our different backgrounds. Yeah. And we knew that there was something to that, you know, that if we could bring these worlds together, something interesting was going to happen. I had this vision in my head. Well, the earliest vision I had in my head was, what if Robert Johnson and Charles Mingus had started a band? Like, what would, <laughs> that was like one of my earliest like thoughts. I'm like, what did that? What would that happen? What would happen? What would it you yeah. know turn into? Yeah, you know, because I just this basic idea of like the blues man with the jazz guy and mm -hmm. like bring them together. You know, but um, there was so many influences and ideas musically from my years working with Modesky, Martin, and Wood that I thought, like, why can't that be brought into songwriting? And it's beautiful. Bands are these beautiful social experiments like that. And yeah. if they can stay together long enough, right. great, such cool things happen, and it makes every band completely its own unique universe. Yeah. I think that's what makes a producer who likes to produce get up in the morning, because they're <laughs> like, oh. Yeah what is this group of people going to come up with today? You know, and I'm there to just sort of keep everybody going and happy, but yeah. what are they going to come up with and how can I create an environment where they're just themselves doing the things that makes their chemistry shine? Just to kind of go off that, that moment of when you guys came together to start playing music. Chris, I heard you say once in an interview that um, one of the factors that contributed to that was that, your guy's mom got sick 
and the family was spending more time together um, than it had been previously. And it's very tempting for me to hear that element of your, your guys' origin story and think about how carefully your guys' songs reflect on things like being present, not wanting to miss out on the moment that you're in, and to feel like there's a, there's a connection between those factors. Is that, is that fair to say? I think the reason you explore that stuff is because something along the way in your life broke you. Mm-hmm. And so our mom's passing was something that uh, we'd never experienced anything like that. I hadn't experienced anything remotely like that, like a, my mom dying. I hadn't experienced anybody else close to me dying. Mm-hmm. So to have your mom get sick and die and especially the way that she got sick the ALS you know which basically before it killed her shut her off from the world because you lose all your muscular control and so even though your mind is perfectly fine you can't communicate with the world because you can't speak maybe you can move your eyes and that's the way you sort of can slowly use eye movement to with a with an alphabet board to like mm-hmm. painfully slowly spell things out to try to communicate uh, really challenging so it was just this overwhelming sad experience that I think just to experience something like that and then learn how to survive it mm-hmm. right that that's that's where in turn creatively things get interesting is in the survival part like okay how how am i going to not let my mind take me down the dark rabbit hole like how am i going to move on how am i going to live the next day and that's when i think out of necessity you start learning these tricks or these tools i guess maybe is a better word of like how do i just stay present and focus instead of dwelling on this horrible thing that happened how do i stay present and start getting excited about what's actually happening in my life currently i think that experience if anything we learned we we got a lot of subconscious lessons out of it mm-hmm. and feeling joy or feeling sadness but really feeling it in your body and and paying attention to it and be and honoring it that was a really powerful time for us, and it, and it really bonded us and our whole family. Um, but Chris and I, we, we really were feeling it, and it wasn't a conscious effort. It was just like, this is really what's happening right now, and this is how we're reacting to it. And and it made its way into the music. You know, like we said earlier, too, is what works creatively is usually what works in your everyday life. Yeah, and the album that was most closely related to that experience was loaded people ask me about like the song don't look back and that's like wow it's a heavy breakup she died (laughs) oh i thought it was just like a relationship you know like a boyfriend girlfriend like no that was that was her leaving the planet yeah Yeah. well i i guess the one of the reasons i'm interested to ask you guys about this is because um your music resonates with me for many, many reasons. But the reason it resonates with me the most deeply is the way that you guys write about death. Um, It comes up a lot in your songs, and what's really powerful to me is that when you write about death, oftentimes you're writing about this idea that 
even after people leave the world that we know, there's a way in which they're still here. And Still Close, obviously, is very much about this. Blue and Green, Smoke Ring Halo, all of these songs, it's... I listen to them sometimes intentionally to remind myself of how important it is to maintain an awareness of how much of the end is mysterious. But speaking of the the new record in particular, the last song, Kitchen Floor, it's literally about the idea that if you leave a song behind, it'll be a way for you to remain even after your physical body has passed. And I wonder if you could both say what's, what's resonant for you about that idea. Well, I would just say we learned so much of that from going back to this thing with our mother. Um, and Chris said earlier how, you know, when we were kids, she was just sitting at a desk. We didn't have any appreciation for poetry. At least I didn't when I was a teenager and and she was working so hard at it. And Sam, you're talking, your mother was a visual artist, so you could actually see things and you could see the process and it was a little more obvious, but it was too subtle for us as kids. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but when we lost our mom, her poetry became like the Bible or, or just like it became just this reverent yeah. thing that we're just like, wow, she, she's in here and we've got this forever. I get chills mm-hmm. just talking about it because it's like, that's something she left for us. What's great about uh, a poem or a song or anything that's going to stick around? Yeah, it's connection. It's just it's a it's a way in. It's like a way to connect. Even if someone's gone, it's still there. It still exists. It's still honest, and it still changes because your perspective is changing as yeah. you change. I like that. Like the song you're talking about, Don't Look Back. That at the time, Chris was writing that song about the loss of our mother, and it was related to that. But to whoever commented on it, they said, well, I thought it was a breakup song. Well, that person who thought it was a breakup song, then that same person will have a greater, a different understanding when they lose their mother or the interpretation can evolve. And I think our, our own songs even do that for us. Like, what you what you mean by something in a song may come from a specific time sensitive inspiration, but then it it changes, and over the years, it can be a breakup song again, or it can be a, a different thing to different people. Mm-hmm. So that makes me want to ask one of the songs that I was re-listening to and getting ready to talk to you guys today is "Pay Attention," um, and mm. that's a song that the first time I heard it. I thought was about perhaps someone that the person that the song is addressed to is in love with and they feel like they can't get their attention romantically. Um, But thinking about all of these themes and reflecting on the new record and and now thinking of all the stuff we've been talking about today, I, I started to think about that song as someone's inner voice saying, don't forget to pay attention to yourself don't don't let all these distractions get so loud that you don't remember to just exist in yourself and there's even a line in there where you say um it's something along the lines of like if if you don't pay attention to me i'll talk much too loud uh, suggesting that you know there can be physiological effects when you when you mm. don't have this meditative time or this this kind of check-in time was that anywhere in the thought process when you wrote that song do you recall I think the song was in 
the initial inspiration I, and all that stuff's cool and valid so but um the initial inspiration was definitely the feeling of uh, of a marriage and children and overwhelming responsibilities and the feeling of that you're losing the attention of the person you love because there's just too many other distractions in the world and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. the kids are now getting all the attention from mom and you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. and uh, it's your your original connection, your original love, is sort of being taken for granted or something. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, and then, <clears throat> and then you become the annoying person who's trying to get attention by talking too loud, by like, hey, what about me over here? And um, trying too hard to get attention and being needy and mm-hmm. all these those kind of things, you know. But if someone's really paying attention to you, you don't have to do much to get your point across. You know, you you feel heard, you feel seen, and you don't have to do a whole lot. And so I guess you could, yeah, take that to the point of paying attention to yourself. There has to be a quietness and a calm Mm -hmm. in order to to do that, pay attention, and then ultimately to enjoy the moment. Yeah. (laughs) Let's get back to the joy. Yeah. Yeah, I I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that. I feel like all these things that we're talking about and that we've learned and that to some degree we've we've become wiser about and I put quotes on that because you can never master it or anything. No, no matter how many concepts we learn that help us be childlike or be vulnerable or be creative or anything they only work if if you <laughs> if you remember to do them, and I, I feel like we we had just by chance uh, almost a subtitle for the new record. There, there's two songs where it's where we couldn't resist using the line "remember to remember," mm-hmm. and I say subtitle just because it's one of the things that sort of ties all these thoughts together. Is that they all are good well and good and they're all they all work and they're powerful and you have to remember to remember them and you have to some of them we can maybe internalize but it's almost like you'll never be a child again and that vulnerable and that innocent and that creative um without some kind of help how do i remember you know and so well you talk to each other about it yeah well, uh, I want to say here, just to close out, um, people often ask me, uh, I'll tell them, you know, you're talking about your favorite bands, I will always name you guys on that list, and people will say, oh, what do you, what do you like about the Wood Brothers? And my answer is always that more so than any other music I've ever listened to, when I listen to your songs, I feel like I feel them in my, I feel them in two places, in in the pit of my stomach and at the corners of my eyes because I find myself often brought to the edge of big emotion whether it's sadness or joy Um, Mm -hmm. and and in talking to you today I I really feel like I have a much deeper awareness of where those sensations come from so I want to thank you both so much Uh, you've just made a huge impact on my life and um, talking to you has, has been a real gift so thank you Thank you, Sam. It was uh, fun. Thanks, Sam. Fun to talk about that stuff. I'm glad. Mm-hmm.
Hey Sam, you called my phone. I'm thinking, what do you want? What do you want from my life? You call my phone and hang up on me? You know who my father is? My father was once known as Anakin Skywalker, general of the rebellion. Okay? I could have clone troopers embark upon, upon your area at any given time. Just remember that. So call me back, Sam. You called me up. I want to know what you want from me. I am John. You reached me somehow. Peace. The Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Oliver and Chris Wood for taking this time to talk to me about how they make the music that I love so much. Check the show notes for links to their new record, Heart is the Hero, as well as all of their music and some YouTube videos that I love very much that I think illustrate some of the performative moments that we talked about in this conversation. I also want to send a special shout-out to Kevin Calabro. Thank you, Kevin, so much for helping make this interview happen. If you have thoughts about anything you heard in this episode or any of our episodes of The Midnight Disease, please reach out. The email address is midnight at walt.fm. We'll be back next week with another great conversation. And until then, thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. And for now, keep driving. You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.